All right. Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. I'll be reading this morning from verse 20 through verse 34. You're certainly welcome to follow along in the text or on the screen. Before I read, let me just give us a frame of reference or context for this story in Acts 16. Paul and his missionary team, a team of four at least that we know of, Paul and Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, who actually penned the book of Acts. They've crossed the sea on a second missionary journey. They've entered into Macedonia, which we know to be Europe. And now they're bringing the gospel for the first time to Europe. And it specifically lands in a city called Philippi, a major city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. As they enter into this city, things get interesting. We're going to pick up in the middle of this chapter as the third encounter that Paul and Silas have with somebody that is changed by the gospel happens. Beginning in verse 20. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials, They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. And he assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted, stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into the house and set a meal before them. And he as an entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment this morning to reflect on your word, I pray, God, that you will help us to see the effect that the gospel has in our life. 
not only to bring salvation to our lives, but to change us, transform us from the inside out. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be enlightened today and to be encouraged that we may gain an understanding of your word in such a way that we will live faithfully unto you as we show and tell the gospel to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we consider the gospel this morning, the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, I want to remind you that the gospel is both a good news message to proclaim, but the gospel is also a life that we live. The gospel that has taken root in anybody's life changes somebody from an old person to a new person. And the change that comes as a result of the gospel in the life of a Christian is one that should be evident to the world around us. This morning, we're going to take a look at what the message of the gospel is, yes, but as importantly, how the gospel actually changes our lives and the effect that should be evident to those around us. We really spent time reading of one encounter that Paul and his missionary team had when they crossed the sea and entered into Europe. But there were two other encounters with people prior to this story that Paul and his missionary team had. And within all three of these encounters, we will witness that the message of the gospel is proclaimed and the effect of the gospel is witnessed in the lives that the gospel has taken root in. And rather than reading those other two encounters, I just want to tell you about them because it will provide a, a frame of reference to this scene in jail where the Philippian jailer has a change of heart in a come-to-Jesus moment. As Paul and his missionary team cross the water and enter into Europe, they end up in Philippi, and the text tells us that they stay there for several days. This is in Acts 16, by the way. Well, as they stay there for several days, on the Sabbath, they went out to go see if they could find any other Jews that were worshiping God. Knowing that it required 10 Jewish men, heads of households, in order to have a Jewish synagogue, and there wasn't one in Philippi, they set out to go meet by bodies of water under the sky as what was required by the Jewish law. If you don't have a synagogue, then people should meet around a body of water under the sky. So that's what Paul, Silas, and his team did. They, they began to look for people who were doing this on the Sabbath. And they happened to come across a lady named Lydia, who was a merchant of purple cloth, very expensive clothing. She was a very wealthy individual who happened to be a Gentile, but God-fearer, who had made connection with Jews who were pursuing God. And so they got together with these people who were pursuing God of the Jewish faith, and Paul began to tell the story 
of the Messiah and how Jesus is he. The text also tells us that Lydia believed Saul and that God turned her heart towards him, not Saul, but God. And as a result, Lydia became a Christian. And as a result, Lydia's household heard the gospel. And as a result, Lydia and others in her family got baptized. As Paul continues to bring the message of the gospel into the community, he now has an advocate. What we know about Lydia is that it's likely throughout history tells us that it was Lydia's household where the first church in Philippi was actually started, but also where the first Christians met to worship God together and to learn the scriptures together. Well, as Paul and Silas leave and, and their team, they, they go about evangelizing throughout the community. And what happens was there was a slave girl who was possessed by a demon who was, her slave owners would take her around and they would have her tell the future to people because this demon within her gave her that ability. As she was telling people the, their future, the slave owners were feeding their pocket. She provided a very healthy and wealthy lifestyle for her owners. Interesting enough, this slave girl who was possessed by the demon, oftentimes would speak truth and acknowledged as she followed Paul and Silas and his team that these men are here to proclaim a message about how you can be saved from your sin. What's wrong with that? Isn't that great? Somebody local advocating for who we are and what we're doing? Sure it is. It doesn't tell us, but I happen to believe that Paul was annoyed that maybe she was drawing more attention to herself than the message of the gospel. The text does tell us that Paul was exasperated with this woman who wouldn't be quiet. So he turned to her and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, be delivered from the demon that is in you. This slave girl who was owned, who was demon-possessed, was freed and healed from the demonic oppression. She could no longer tell the future, and these slave owners lost their income. As a result, now these slave owners begin to make noise in and throughout the community, and they said the whole city is in an uproar because these Jews meaning Paul and Silas, the whole city uh, is in an uproar because they shouted that they are teaching customs that are illegal for Romans to practice. What they didn't know, though, was that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens too. But this leads us to the third encounter, and that would be the Philippian jailer. I want to point out this morning that the first thing we can recognize through all three encounters in Philippi is that the gospel truly is for everyone. It's not just for some. It's not just for us and people like us. It's actually for everyone. If we consider all three of these individuals and their unique differences, listen to this. Lydia was a wealthy Asian woman 
who was a God-fearer, who had everything going for her, was considered white-collar and upper-class. She found Jesus and she got saved. Then there's the slave girl, considered to be oppressed, owned, and as poor as you can get. The text doesn't tell us that she got saved, but it does tell us that the gospel, through the gospel and through Jesus, she was delivered from the demonic state and oppression she was under. I happen to want to believe that this slave girl became a believer in Jesus Christ and was part of the early church in Philippi. I want to believe that. It doesn't tell us that. The third encounter was with a Philippian jailer, likely a retired Roman soldier, blue-collar worker, had power, had privilege, though retired, was still living out his power and privilege within where? The context of being in law enforcement, demonstrating his ability to control those in jail, living a good life. He too encountered the message of the gospel and Jesus changed his life. Within all three of these encounters, we see that the gospel is for the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, the male and the female. The gospel is for everyone. The second thing I want to point out this morning is that the gospel truly changes lives. The gospel changes lives. We see the first effect the gospel has on Paul and Silas when they were in prison in how they acted. From our old self to our new self, there should be a real visible reality to a changed life in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You're not who you used to be. You're now who God made you to be. And I want you to evaluate your own life. Do people see the change in you that truly is evident that you are a Christian? Let's take a look at Paul and Silas. First of all, in verses 23 through 25, we read that they were severely beaten and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Maybe you don't see the dramatic nature of this scene. Let me help you. They were just beat with wooden rods. They were bloody. Bones were likely broken. They were in a place of needing medical attention. But instead, the jailer put them in stocks, in the dungeon, in the depth of the basement of the prison so that they couldn't escape. Locked in these devices that kept their stance at such a distance that they couldn't get comfortable. And in fact, it was more or less a torture device. Listening to the prisoners all around them likely throwing jabs and barbs at the jailer as the jailer likely threw it back. Yet instead, what was the character of Paul and Silas? 
How did they respond in the midst of their suffering and their trial and their tribulation and being beat? They didn't hurl insults at the jailer and ask him what he was doing. They put their eyes on Jesus. They began to sing hymns and they, they prayed. And notice what the text says. Everybody around them was listening. This includes the jailer. I think it's important that we point out that during their suffering and tribulation, they demonstrated a life of peace and a life of joy. Why? Because their eyes were on Jesus. You know, we have many people in our church that have different variations of suffering and hardships in life. Many people in our church are going through cancer battles right now. And it wasn't all that long ago I got to sit with this one lady. She's fighting the battle of her life. Her family is heartbroken. And she's just praising God for every day that she gets now. I asked her as we sat, because she was a witness to me of the joy and the, 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 just the, the sheer, I mean, I can't explain any other word than joy that she had in the midst of her life situation. I said, how is it that you can be like this in the midst of knowing where you're at and what lies ahead? She says, remember what lies ahead is better for me than you here. She also said, my eyes aren't on my circumstances. My eyes are on Jesus. Consider that. Because that's exactly, I think, where Paul and Silas had their eyes. Not on their circumstances. But they had their eyes on Jesus. And as a result, they could praise him and thank him and worship him. While being, being treated with cruelty, they demonstrated a life of kindness and a life of forgiveness, a life of compassion and a life of concern, not only for the jailer, but those who were around him and them. I got to be honest with you. The person who has demonstrated and taught me the most about what forgiveness really looks like and what it truly means is my wife, Gwen. You know, early on in our marriage, I wasn't all that great to her. But she taught me what forgiveness is. She taught me what love is. She taught me so many things about myself and about God and about what it means to live a life of forgiveness towards one another that I can't even begin to explain to you how significant that was to me. It forever changed my perspective of my wife because I see her more like Jesus than ever. But she helped me understand what true forgiveness is. I don't have to be a doormat, but I do need to be kind. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness takes time. Forgiveness is hard. But forgiveness is necessary if you're going to be like Jesus. See, Paul and Silas, they showed the jailer and everyone in that prison cell the impact that the gospel had on their life. It was more than just a message to proclaim. It was a reality that changed their life. Their character was different. 
They responded to situations different than the world does. They responded like Jesus. You know, I believe that before the jailer was ever willing to listen to a word from Paul or Silas about what the gospel is, it was necessary that he experienced the gospel through them. In your own life, consider the importance of that. Before anybody will ever listen to you and what the gospel is, they need to see in you what the gospel is and what it has done to you. Clearly, Paul and Silas had something that the jailer needed and that the jailer wanted. Because as a result, the jailer asked the question in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? It's interesting because Luke doesn't tell us that the jailer's inquiry was about salvation. Consider the event that just took place. The prison's full of prisoners. These two are in the dungeon, shackled and chained and beaten. An earthquake takes place, an act of God. All the prisoners' chains fell off. If I was a prisoner in that prison, what would have I done? I think I would have run. But the witness and the testimony of Paul and Silas penetrated the hearts of those around them. It wasn't just a message. It was a life they were living. And they had such an influence on every prisoner that nobody fled. They all remained. And the jailer knew that the result of the escaped prisoners will cost me my life. And so rather than going before the Roman authorities and the humiliation of a public trial, he was just going to fall on the sword and take his own life and get it over with. But Paul yells, don't do it. Stop. We're all here. And then the question, what must I do to be saved? I guess I wonder if what he was asking is, how do I get myself out of this situation with the Roman authorities? How do I help my family in the midst of all the public perception that's going to take place in my life because of this? But maybe the jailer knew why Paul and Silas were in there because the message of the slave girl that was going around kept telling people, these men are here to tell you how you can find salvation in God. We really don't know. But what we do know is that the way Paul responded to the question pointed the jailer to Jesus. And this is what he said. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I want you to notice what Paul did here. He didn't just point him to Jesus. What he helped the jailer do is take his eyes off himself. You can't look within and save yourself. You must look without in order to be saved. You're in a situation both in this prison and in life and eternity that you can't fix on your own. Your job, your family, your good works, 
the life you're living, you can't do it on your own. Did you hear the question, what must I do to be saved? He never asked, who must I believe in to be saved? But what Paul told him is who he needs to believe in to be saved. And in doing so, what Paul was really saying is this, you can't do anything but believe in the one who's already done it for you. For what you need done for you and what I need done for me because of our sin has already been done by Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself, nor can I. But we can turn our eyes to the one who can, Jesus, and he can save us. In the Old Testament, it says in Isaiah 45, 22, let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God. There is no other. Y'all remember the story in John chapter 3 about Jesus with Nicodemus, right? If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, uh, to, to John quickly, chapter, chapter 3. In John chapter 3, this religious guys having this conversation with Jesus and he just can't quite understand like how does one find salvation and and Jesus is talking about faith and he's so perplexed and confused and and so Jesus in verse 14 he says this to to Nicodemus he says and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Keep that in mind. Because Jesus goes on to say, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. What's Jesus talking about? Why did he reference the serpent on the pole? He's talking about faith, about getting your eyes off yourself and putting them to the one who can save you. So why the reference to the, the pole, the serpent on the pole? Because in Numbers 21, we read about the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. And they forgot that it was their sin that put them there. And they started blaming Moses. And I can't even imagine what Moses' conversation with God was like. Are you kidding me? Why is this my fault? But there they are, blaming him. And God says, no, I'm going to remind you that it was your sin that put you here. So he sent serpents and snakes, poisonous. They began biting and killing people. They came to Moses in an act of mercy, they cried out to God and said, we need God's forgiveness. Help us, Moses. And so Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, go put a serpent on a pole. And whenever somebody's bit by a snake, they need to look at that pole and they're going to be healed and they'll be saved. God was teaching them about faith that in and of yourself, you can't heal yourself, but you need to look beyond yourself to someone else in order to find salvation to find healing, to find hope. This is what Paul is doing with the jailer. You can't look to yourself. 
It just seems so ridiculous and unreasonable. But that's what faith is. It's believing Jesus for who he is, what he's done, and what he'll continue to do for you. So that was looking at how the gospel changed Paul. Now let's take a quick look at how the gospel actually changed the Philippian jailer. The effect the gospel had on this guy is really evident. Verse 32, they shared the word of the Lord with him, the jailer, and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in the household were immediately baptized. He brought them into the house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in him. Character shift, old self to new self, old self, I was brutal, I had no compassion, I lacked mercy, I beat the daylights out of you, I stuck you in shackles and chain, and I enjoyed torturing you. The jailer's new self, he has compassion. When Paul and Silas needed to be cleaned up and they were broken and they needed nothing more than care, he shackled and chained them. But now what does he do? As a result of believing in Jesus and Jesus changing his heart, immediately he takes these men and he cleans them up. He demonstrates hospitality by feeding them a meal with his family. He extends mercy. He acts with goodness and kindness. He identifies with Jesus and with Paul and Silas as brothers as he gets baptized. How cool is that? When the Holy Spirit of God takes root within us and indwells us, the fruit of the Spirit comes out of us. Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us what that is. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is the gospel changing your life? Are you living the gospel in life? Is the gospel to you only a message to proclaim? Or are you allowing the word of God to inform your whole life? Your thoughts, your beliefs, your behaviors, the patterns of your life. We are to live it out in love. First Corinthians, Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrong. It does not rejoice in, uh, about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never fails. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. When the gospel took root in my life, one of the first areas that God began to change in me was my mouth. But it actually was a result of him first changing my mind and my heart. Because the Bible tells us that what comes out of our mouth is actually a reflection of what's in our heart. My appetites changed. My interests changed. How I viewed people began to change. The Bible says that we should not praise and curse 
out of the same mouth, for it's not fitting for a believer. For me, God had a big job to do, working on my head and working on my heart so that my mouth could get cleaned up. How about you? What's your witness in the world? Do people know you're a Christian even by the way you talk? Are you living the gospel in life through your mouth? Are you able to win people to Jesus because of your thoughts and your heart towards others? The last point I just want to touch on briefly is that the gospel brings unity within diversity. Interesting enough, all three of these people are so dramatically different in Acts 16. Rich and poor, middle class, powerful, weak, young and old, big and small, classify it how you want. But there's no other family on earth that is so diverse than the family of God. And if you're wondering if God can change you, I promise you he can. Because remember the gospel's for everyone. The gospel changes lives. The gospel is not only a message we proclaim, but a life that we live. And if we want to be effective in proclaiming the good news of Jesus with those around us, we have to take care of business in here. Rely on the Holy Spirit to transform us, to mold us, to shape us. This isn't a book to memorize so we have all the right answers. It's the word of God that is to penetrate us deep within so that it can mold us and shape us and form us into the image of God's son, Jesus Christ. Remember quite literally, we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world as Christians. The work of Jesus continues through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his people. That's you and me. Let's go into this world and not just tell people about Jesus, but let's show them Jesus through how we live. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the morning of encouragement. Thank you for the life that you live, Jesus, the hope that you give, the grace you extend, and the mercy that's new every day. Father, help us to be a people who recognize the significance of the gospel, both as a word to proclaim and a life to live, so that we can bring the good news of Jesus to all we encounter every day. In Jesus' name, amen.